focus is on chapters three, four, and five of Rausch's book. And what I want to start off with here is the historical evidence of Jesus. So very little evidence occurs outside of the New Testament. However, on page 47, Rausch introduces you to uh, Josephus and the Roman Tacitus, uh, both of whom mention at least the early Christians and the life of Jesus that they commemorated, and also the death that, of course, was significant for the community. We also know that uh, Pontius Pilate was a true uh, individual who's mentioned by um, a number of outside Roman and Jewish sources. We also recently found a um, archeological, in an archeological dig, I should clarify, a ring with Pontius Pilate's name on it. And that's significance to uh, indicate to us that, yes, in fact, there was a man uh, who served as governor of Judea named Pontius, Pontius Pilate. We also note uh, on the next page the Emperor Nero, um, and this is significant for several reasons. Notably for the early Christian community, uh, he's recognized as one who persecuted Christians to a great extent, forcing them to go into places like the Colosseum and take on uh, wild animals, gladiators, and other fighters uh, to the brink of death. He would parade Christians up and down the streets um, and then uh, crucify them outside of the city walls of Rome, um, just as an example of his sort of uh, brutality. Why he does this is because of his own faults. So Christianity is a new religion in the first century, um, or, you know, much of which uh, occurs between the after mark of, of Jesus' death, all right, so we're talking about 33 AD, uh, through the remainder of the first century into the second and third. And uh, for Christianity, this new religion and the empire, it's met with automatic and initial resistance. Uh, because they celebrate an individual who called himself king. And for the emperors of Rome, as you read about before, there was no such king or power that should have existed outside of the emperor. And so this was really concerning for men like Nero and others. But Nero uh, was also this egotistical driven leader who wanted to essentially create a new Rome. And in order to do that, he had to tear down parts of old Rome. And he purposely uh, started a fire in order to create this new area, which he would then build this new magnificent city uh, to himself, essentially. And the fire gets out of control. And in order to find blame, because he's called to the table uh, by the Roman Senate, he opts to scapegoat the Christians as the ones responsible for this. And so they're rounded up in large part, arrested, forced to uh, fight, and forced to essentially take responsibility for what um, Nero essentially did. We also see in this chapter mentions of non-canonical or pseudo-gospels. So the Gospels of Thomas, Peter, Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Philip uh, provide sort of non, well, they provide non-traditional information about Jesus, uh, the likes of which 
author Dan Brown has sensationalized into uh, hit books and then films like The Da Vinci Code. And there's also a new um, TV series based on Dan Brown's work, I think on Peacock or NBC's online uh, platform. Anyway, they are sources that are believed to be written between the first and sixth century. Um, and they don't, their content doesn't match up with the synoptic gospels or John's gospel. So of course, when we talk about the synoptic, mean, meaning same or similar, we talk about Mark, Matthew, and Luke authored in that, er, uh, that order, Mark beginning that first stage um, uh, about 65 AD. And then Matthew and Luke would follow between 65 and 90 AD. And then Luke, the non-synoptic non gospel, excuse me, would be written between 90 and 100. He goes into, Rausch goes into the stages of authorship, the stages of development of these gospel traditions. Essentially, what I want you to know here is that it begins in the oral tradition, meaning that stories are told verbally from one community to another, from one family to another family, uh, before they're written down much later. And you have this uh, makeup or this body of work that's articulated on page 51, where uh, Roush is talking about how Mark's gospel is initially composed. And then, of course, Matthew and Luke will use Mark's gospel to help them write their own uh, community text specific for their community. But it begins with this idea of both sayings and parables, stories about Jesus, miracle stories, healing stories, etc. It also talks about the Christological titles of Christ. We'll talk about Christology in a moment here. Um, and then the Easter stories and the first generation or the first makeup of the early church. And then you talk about how those stories were taken and used to compose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels the four canonical Gospels. The Christology stories, the Christology titles are noted on page 51, and I just want to point to a couple of them. So Prophet and Son of David are familiar to us because of the Old Testament, because of the Hebrew Bible, where Prophet is seen as one who shares the message of Christ to a particular community or particular leader. Um, you know, we see prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Josiah, Amos, Hosea, Job. These are all texts given their own uh, book in the Hebrew Bible, uh, and they each have a different message. Many of them warn the leaders or the community that if they don't shape up and abide by the, uh, the covenant agreement between God and the Israelites, that they'll face punishment. David, of course, is recognized as the golden era king of Israel, the one responsible for putting Jerusalem on the map as a religious and political center, although it would be his son who would put the mark of the temple in the city of Jerusalem, literally building the temple under his rule. You also see this title of Messiah. Uh, Messiah is a Hebrew term. Uh, and it has different connotations for the Israelites than it does for Christians. We interpret Jesus to be the Messiah for our context and our purposes. And when we talk about Messiah, we talk about three things. One, that he will have a connection to King David. Jesus does. That he will uh, be from 
uh, this center of wealth and power in that sense. Jesus doesn't fit that mold. He doesn't have the wealth and the uh, royal identity that King David does. And that he would be able to raise as the third marker an army. And of course we know that Jesus does not raise an army that's uh, combative enough to the Roman authority and the Roman military. So that's where we differ on Messiah. We see the title of Lord pretty familiar to us because we also see this in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, son of man, son of God, both of these titles are used interchangeably. Son of man points to um, this idea that Jesus's roots can be traced back directly to Adam. Son of God, of course, is this idea that God, uh, you know, impregnated Mary and became incarnate. Emmanuel and God are two other titles. Emmanuel is this, this name granted to Jesus, essentially uh, recognition for um, his place in the universe, his place in the, the makeup of the divine. In uh, the subsequent pages, we also see some sayings of Jesus, most notably the Beatitudes. I'd encourage you on page 53 to go over this, particularly uh, Luke's version, um, which, you know, they're very common, but Luke really appeals to the poor. Uh, Luke's gospel is regarded as the, um, the gospel for all people, the universal gospel. It's not limited to just the Jewish population or the converts from Judaism as though Matthew's is written. Um, but you see there this idea that the, the kingdom of God, heaven, if you will, is available to those who recognize certain rules about the law, rules that are outlined in the Beatitudes, rules that Christ thinks are more important than, uh, you know, um, adhering to certain practices in the temple or abiding by the, the X, Y, and Z of the law. The parables are another form of Jesus's preaching. So this is on page 56 and 7. Um, parables, as described by James Martin, are basic stories about which the people can relate to. So here in this context, Jesus is trying to make a connection between uh, what is common to the people, farming, fishing, baking bread, and so forth, and what would otherwise be complex. In other words, the the uh, teachings of the, um, the kingdom of God. So here, uh, James Martin writes the following. Uh, James Martin is a Jesuit priest. You may have come across his name on America Magazine's online website. He writes, even today, the most familiar parables may baffle us. There is strong evidence that Jesus himself did not expect all of his listeners to grasp the parables. One of the most difficult passages in the Gospels, much discussed by scripture scholars, comes in Mark, when the disciples ask Jesus bluntly why he speaks in parables. His answer was most likely as mysterious to them as it is to us. Quote, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. Here, Jesus is quoting a passage from Isaiah, which speaks to those who are deaf and blind to the word of God. Some scholars say that 
quote, in order that is better translated as because. In other words, some do not grasp the parables because they are hard-hearted. But, e but even given that translation, it is still a troubling passage. An almost identical explanation occurs in Luke and Matthew. So, in short, some of these parables are not intended to be met with response and approval right away. Some of these parables are meant to be, you know, thought about, considered, uh, swirled in one's mouth like a glass of wine. Parables are meant, in this instance, to get us to think about what exactly Christ asks of us. We meditate on the parables, Roush writes, we gain an insight into the kingdom of God breaking into our world. All of Christ's message is focused on this usage or this notion of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. The parables, the sayings all point towards this. Now we have to understand that the kingdom of God is a goal. Uh, it's the end zone for which we're always trying to reach. It's that home run hit we're almost always trying to get. But it's almost always impossible. The fence is too far. The goalpost is too high. It's beyond our reach. So the kingdom of God for Christ is something that we aim at. We try to grasp, but it's not always obtainable. In fact, it won't be obtainable in this lifetime. St. Augustine writes about this in City of God, where he talks about the foils of man being wrapped up in the city of man. Uh, this idea that we are sinners, we're trapped as sinners in the city of man, where we have laws that are unjust, laws that overtax the middle class, overtax the poor, and benefit the wealthy. This is the curse of the city of man, as an example. The city of God gives us hope. It gives us a goal, once again. It gives us that goalpost for which we strive. And even then, right in the human existence, we will never quite reach that goalpost. We'll never reach that city of heaven. The miracles give us hope. The miracles provide us an example of what the kingdom of God looks like. It's freedom from sin, freedom from disease, freedom from punishment. It's all of these things that the kingdom does not have. And so we see those desperate people reaching out to Jesus's cloak, trying to reach that cloak, asking him to pr provide that healing, asking him to provide some sense of purpose and meaning for them. You see, a sinner or a person struck with a disease or a problem, a person like the bleeding woman, a person who has leprosy, a person who's blind or deaf, they were outcast to society. They were thought of as persons that didn't belong in the community and were often told, leave the walls of the city, leave the confines of the city. And so that grasping for a miracle, that hoping for a sign of hope, that hoping for a sign of the kingdom is really what uh, is offered in those stories of healings and miracles. Contemporary expressions of the kingdom of God, here Rausch talks about in 64, several instances in our own history in which we see uh, men and women who stood up against powers of apartheid and slavery and injustice, uh, striving for a mirror image of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. 
freedom from oppression, dehumanization, striving for a world where humans flourish, and that there is the sense of common good. So we conclude on page 65 these references to Jesus, uh, uh, this kingdom of God, quote, a metaphor of God's saving power breaking into the lives of men and women through the ministry of Jesus, healing the sick, setting free those under the power of evil, reconciling sinners and those marginalized from the religious community, and gathering together a community of salvation. Ultimately, his preaching and efforts to symbolize a renewed Israel with the 12 at its center aroused strong opposition on the part of the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, and with the help of the Roman governor, Christ was condemned and put to death on a cross, a Roman form of capital punishment reserved for slaves and those who rebelled against Rome. Continuing on, the kingdom of God cannot be reduced to an ideology or program for social change. It is an inseparable from God, drawing near to us through the life and teaching of Jesus, God's only son. I'd like to start off chapter four, Christology, talking about the scriptures. So this is page 79 and following. Paul is our first New Testament writer. Uh, Paul, as we've mentioned before, is this convert to Christianity, an individual who did not personally know Christ, did not serve as a disciple, uh, was not accepted as an apostle at first, uh, and yet he is the one to first write about Christianity in the Christian churches and two particular Christian communities, places like Galatia and Ephesus and Rome. Paul's letters, this first documentation of Christianity reveal a lot about the early church, what they were struggling with, who they were facing, the questions that they had relative to slavery and baptism and being citizens within uh, a Roman government, within a Roman occupation for many. And he writes about these uh, in light of what he has learned from Christ, about Christ. Um, Acts of the Apostles tells us much of Paul's story where he goes through this literally eye-opening um, conversion experience. And it talks about in that text uh, how Paul came to know God, how, call, how Paul came to know Christ in that instance. <clears throat> the subsequent then, uh, the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and then John. Um, Rausch gives you some very clear dates or suggestion of dates, um, as well as uh, how they describe Christ in the relationship between Jesus of Nazareth and God or Yahweh. And they'll give, he gives multiple examples in each one of those passages, focusing on first the three synoptic gospels, beginning with Mark through Luke. And then in John's gospel, this connection to um, what occurs in both the opening of his gospel and in the opening of the Bible in the Hebrew scriptures, this idea of logos. So with Mark, you see a very introductory message, biography, if you will, to Christ. And the past students have asked me, well, should we take Mark more seriously than the others, simply because Mark was written first? And I want to say no. Uh, there's no one gospel that sticks out above others within the canon. Um, and again, that canon is the official list of accepted books within our Bible. Um, rather, what I'd consider or what I would ask you to consider is the fact that 
the Gospels are written for particular communities dealing with particular events and things. So Mark, writing around 68, um, has this inclination that uh, something horrible is coming, that Christianity as a whole is going to face a, a series of persecutorial events, that they will face the fury and fire of emperors like Nero, um, local governors like Pontius Pilate, uh, and more who want really to rid Christianity from the map of the Roman Empire, uh, and also their relationship to Judaism. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees standing up against Christianity in this early era. By the time you get to Matthew now, uh, you see that following Mark's example of Mark being authored for a community that was well-versed in and understood the notion of Judaism, Matthew likewise is very deeply ingrained in Judaism, but at the same time is aware of the new Gentiles questioning, uh, wanting membership, hoping to participate in this tradition. And by the mid-80s, uh, you know, really 70 to 85, I would say, is when Matthew writes. In that time period, we've seen now the destruction of the temple and Judaism change from one of a religion of sacrifice in the temple of Jerusalem to one of practice in the synagogue. And so now the Christian community has to wrestle with, are we Jewish? Are we members of this new tradition? Do we have a name for this new tradition? How do we put Christ in the context of the Messiah, uh, the law, King David? How do we match all of this up? And so you see Matthew using both the Gospel of Mark and the Q source, which Rausch mentions on page 81, as the pieces that are used by the author to compose or compile his gospel into that biographical story. And we see in Matthew's gospel now the titles of Son of Man and Son of God used almost interchangeably. But this idea that God is taking on this human form, that God is literally with us in Matthew 1.23, that literally God had become human through this divine intervention with Jesus' mother Mary. And so you see sort of uh, an evolution of the thought of early Christianity compared to Mark's gospel. Mark does not provide a birth narrative. Uh, Matthew is the first to do this, followed by Luke, which we'll talk about in a moment. Interestingly here, you also find between the two gospels the questioning of the disciples. You know, who are you, Jesus? Uh, and Jesus in turn will ask the disciples often, who do people say I am? And this back and forth about um, who Jesus is in comparison to the prophets of the Old Testament, to key figures like Moses, to other key figures like the major prophets Isaiah or Ezekiel uh, or John the Baptist. And Christ finds himself identifying as something other than those, more than those. He's not simply just a messenger He's there to do the bidding of God on earth. And so when the disciples say, well, you must be the Messiah then, Jesus puts them in their place and says, you have to keep that quiet. And that message of silence, that keeping quiet around the idea of Messiah, 
uh, is really not revealed until his death. Um, in Luke's gospel, after Matthew, we find a gospel that is now transitioning to an audience that is not just Jewish or converts from Judaism, but one that is open to all. And so Luke has to figure out ways in which to portray Jesus that fits with the Greek context, the Greek world context, no longer the Hebrew-speaking world, but now we have expanded northward into places like Turkey, uh, Syria, and Greece, where you have this long tradition of Greek language, Greco-Roman thought, uh, Greek philosophy, Hellenism, and all its aspects that's come, co that comes with that. And so what we find here is uh, on page 82, Roush writes, In preaching the kingdom of God, Jesus offers forgiveness of sin, drives out evil spirits, heals people, welcomes the marginalized, and after his resurrection, pours out the Holy Spirit. John is, for lack of a better phrase, the trippiest of the four Gospels. And what do I mean by that? Well, um, John does not fit the mold of the other three. He doesn't give this very systematic uh, approach that tells the story from A to Z, from north to south, from Galilee to his death in Jerusalem. Rather, he tells it in a very poetic style that, yes, follows Jesus's pathway north to south, but dances around some of the themes that are common to the idea of logos or wisdom or, uh, you know, this, this understanding that God becoming human uh, is very unique and doesn't fit the Jewish understanding here. So what do I mean here? Well, at the very beginning of John's gospel, the gospel tells us in the beginning was the word, logos, and, and the word or logos was with God, and the logos or word was God. Uh, that's a direct parallel to the opening of the book of Genesis, that in the beginning, right, this, this form, this um, creator, takes action and begins to build what we would now call creation or earth or th those things around us, right? And so trippy in the sense that he opts to take this model uh, for going the Matthew and Mark versions of birth, birth from a woman, uh, birth following very much the, the Greek or Roman mythology where you have gods mating with humans to create these sort of semi-gods. Um, John does not take that approach. John really ingrains Jesus as this individual who has always been there uh, and now has opted to take human form in and amongst a particular society at a particular time. This idea of Yahweh coming to be the Son of Man, coming to appear as the God incarnate, uh, is very unique to John's gospel. So flipping back now to the beginning of the chapter, the chapter is centered on Christology. Um, Christology, so we spoke about logos here, ology, the uh, suffix to this word, ology typically is referred to as science of or study of, but remember too, we've, we've already read that it also means reason of or, or this notion of that there's always been this underlying uh, guide, this underlying principle 
And so we've got this underlying principle or the science of Christ, the one who saves. And so when we get to the death of Jesus, we see, you know, this questioning of who was this man, this who are we studying, essentially, uh, who promised all of these great things that, you know, the temple would be torn down, that it would be raised again in three days, you know, that the uh, the notion of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees as being false in their way and understanding of teaching the law, that, you know, he would challenge the Roman authority, that the most powerful government that existed known to man at the time. And so uh, this study of Christ for the early century was really uh, scooped up into all of this. You know, here's here's Christ, the, the same word that we would use for Messiah. Uh, as someone who is supposed to be wealthy and raise an army and overturn the Roman government, and yet he doesn't. And so when Christ dies and when Judaism and Christianity, its early form, are shaken up, um, due in large part to the destruction of the temple, the dismissal of Jews from Jerusalem, the forcing of them to create their own communities by way of the synagogue in their local towns and villages, and then eventually house churches, this early form of gathering, um, you know, the, the early Christian community was really shocked and unclear as to what they were going to do. So then it brings us to this conversation about the resurrection. You know, we read in our gospel stories now uh, this idea that when Jesus dies and these people appear to the empty cave, then Jesus comes back and suddenly he's gone again. What exactly did this resurrection experience mean for the disciples? You know, at once he is dead, he appears to them and now is gone. Uh, and we're told he sits at the right hand of the Father. These stories are most likely later parts of the story. Uh, what do I mean by later? Five, ten years after those Gospels that we mentioned earlier, after those are written, perhaps are included or edited into the text. And it meant to provide, particularly for Mark's Gospel, a sense of purpose for those followers and those followers' followers. In other words, it was meant to underscore what Christianity was therefore supposed to be about moving forward. It's not simply looking for the Messiah's next arrival or return. It's not simply looking for someone to take up the mantle of healing and messaging and baptizing, although those were important tasks. Rather, it's to memorialize and recognize that there was a meaning behind that horrific crucifixion. There was a meaning behind Christ's return and then eventual resurrection. And that meaning gave purpose to the early Christians to then talk about their Easter experience to those who were new to the community. It gave meaning and reason for the early church to serve those uh, who were questioning, you know, who was Jesus in relationship to God. So the resurrection and this eschaton then comes into play before we start talking about those Gospels. The resurrection, Christ disappears, you know, from them after uh, three days. And again, the disciples are questioning, well, why? What does this mean? 
And they recall, particularly we see this in the Gospels, that Jesus promised his return, uh, particularly at the end times. And he warns in uh, Mark and Matthew especially that there will be earthquakes and famine and fires and drought and so on and so forth. And he warns them those still will not be the end times, for no one knows what the end time is but God. Nevertheless, these horrific events that literally shook people's world in the case of earthquakes and caused much despair in the case of famine and drought, these were seen as signs as potential or possible events that would lead to Jesus reappearing and making judgment on people. So that gap between 30-33 AD when Jesus dies and 65 AD and following when the Gospels are written, this whole time period is thought to be the period in which Jesus would return, that that in fact would be the end time when Christ would make judgment over his people, over humanity. None of that, of course, happens. And what you see then is the authors and communities telling these stories verbally, as I've mentioned, and wanting then to make sure that they were preserved. And the best way to preserve them is to write those gospel stories down, hence Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and make sure that they were copied and recopied and shared again and passed on from one generation to the next, one community to the next. And sure enough, that's what occurred. But this eschaton, this idea of Christ returning soon, really captured the minds and hearts of those early Christians. A bit of fear but also a bit of hope. We've talked about the Messiah. This is page 75 of Rausch's book. Uh, and I'll read from that first paragraph under that subtitle. The Hebrew Messiah or Messiah means anointed. The Greek Christos is a, part, a participle meaning uh, having been anointed. It has the same root as the Greek chrisma, anointment, oil, which survives in the English holy chrism used in the sacraments. And Israel, kings and priests were anointed. And so you have this individual Christ, both kingly and priestly, anointed. And this is a theme that Catholicism picks up in the 1960s uh, in one of its Vatican II documents that we'll talk about later. But the Messiah was supposed to be the one uh, promised to the Jewish people, one who would raise up uh, an army to fight an imperial authority like Rome, who would have wealth and a connection to King David. And yet what we have in Christ is quite the opposite. We don't have that wealth and that power in the sense that was earthly recognized, right? He didn't raise an army or have or command the power that King David did. And King David, after all, was this model. And so the early Christians had to think about ways to describe Christ as Messiah, describe Jesus as Messiah. And so you see this in Mark when the, uh, the centerpiece Christ asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And they rattle off uh, three options. And then finally, Peter says, no, you are Messiah. And it's at that point, Jesus says, quiet, don't say that. That could cause trouble for us. And we were not done with our mission yet, essentially. So the title of Son of God would often be used as the substitute or the Son of Man. Uh, this is that exchange that Christ has in one of the Gospels with Pontius Pilate. And this idea here was nothing new, 
we certainly know that Adam would have been referred to as the son of God, that other uh, wise men uh, would likewise have been referred to as something from God, a son of God, perhaps. And so this title is nothing new, and yet we see this as something that comes up in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. You see, Messiah for the early Christians, trying to figure out their relationship with Judaism is important for the reason that they are not only tasked with spreading the message, so how can we fit Messiah with this man Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, but also how do we justify the use of Messiah uh, as an ideal for what we strive to be? We strive to be a priestly people. We strive to be a kingly people. We strive to help and serve those. One other note about this, which always fascinates me, and this is not in Rausch's uh, document in his book, um, but in the, the birth narratives, particularly that of Matthew's gospel, we see that three kings of Orient, right? I think of the hymn here from Christmas time, but three kings from the East arrive to uh, the manger. And we're told that gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh are given to Jesus and his family. Uh, so gold is obvious. Gold is a sign of wealth. Gold perhaps helped the family escape to Egypt and then eventually return in Matthew's gospel to Galilee, and, and particularly Nazareth, um, to set up their family to help Joseph perhaps provide for the family as the, as the man of the house. Frankincense uh, is very much um, a, a property that's used for um, kings, uh, as is myrrh. Um, one is oil and one is uh, very much, frankincense is very much like that incense that you would smell at uh, high holy days in a Jewish synagogue or a Christian church, such as Easter. And so these Two other products, right, are given to Christ early on in his life, according to Matthew, symbols perhaps of his uh, kingliship or, pre or high kingship that these uh, celestial followers, these kings or these scientists of the Easts are studying as they arrive in Bethlehem upon Jesus's birth. It's just an interesting consideration. Um, again, Rausch doesn't include this, but they are certainly symbols of kingship that are found early on in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 5 really struggles with the notion of the Holy Spirit and how the idea of the Trinity evolves. So I'm not going to harp too much on the Trinity because you read about that from Reza Aslan and you watched a bit about it um, with Robert Barron's uh, quick YouTube video. But I do want to mention just a few things. So at work in this, particularly when we talk about the uh, second paragraph on page 89 of Rausch's book, is this notion that uh, the early Christians and first century Judaism was really wrestling with how they appropriated Greek thought and Greek philosophy into their own um, principles and their own understanding of God. And what we see are things like uh, wisdom um, and other notions of gods uh, folding themselves into the idea of Yahweh or the idea of God, if we will, in English. 
Um, and what do I mean by this? Well, let's talk about wisdom first. So wisdom is perceived by Greek and Roman thought as being a, a Greek or Roman goddess who imparts knowledge or wisdom or intellect to human beings. And when this goddess is introduced to the Jewish people uh, early on in the first century, um, you know, the, the Jews don't want to be left behind in saying that only Greeks and Romans are privy to wisdom or intellect or knowledge. So what the Greeks do is appropriate, excuse me, what the Jewish people do is appropriate this idea uh, and turn it into wisdom personified as a, a female or feminine gift from God. So it's not a goddess, but it is a gift from God who can be painted or portrayed as feminine. Um, so you often might see a, a picture of this gift from God as a woman uh, dressed in a long tunic or a long toga with uh, some sort of instrument of knowledge or wisdom in her hand. So a book, a pen, any combination of, of such. So that's one way. The other thing they struggled with was um, this idea of gods uh, of wind and gods of, um, you know, uh, breeze and stuff like this, uh, which were common in all of these Middle Eastern um, cultures. And so you see in Greek and Roman mythology, there are these gods and goddesses who take up these earthly uh, characteristics or principles like wind. And so what the Jews thought of this and what Christians would therefore adopt was that it wasn't the God of wind, but it was the breath of God. Uh, the breath of God, you know, breathed into Adam to animate Adam. Likewise, the breath of God animates the leaves as we walk across campus or in our yards or neighborhoods on a fall day. Um, this idea that God is present in those instances without this you know, adaptation or adoption of other gods into the system of Judaism and then Christianity. So then we think, okay, well, how does this play into God's ever presence with humanity? So we know that for Christianity now, God does not exist in a permanent state of being as you and I are beings. We can interact with each other communicate in a particular way to each other, touch each other, you know, eat food together. Um, those are beings, right? So God is not present in a being sense of the word. Jesus died, rose from the dead, and is resurrected to sit at the right hand of the Father, what we just talked about. So what presence of God can still be felt? What presence of God could still be here and that's the notion of the Holy Spirit. Um, and this notion isn't new to Christianity. There's some sense of this being existence within um, the Hebrew, uh, within the understanding of the breath of God or this, uh, you know, this sort of uh, invisible presence of God. Um, we see this in, for example, the notion that God resides within the Holy of Holies in the ancient temple, again, which is destroyed in 70 AD. But this notion that God literally pitches his tent remains, for lack of a better phrase, invisible to humanity. 
and yet is acknowledged as being there, being present, existing among human beings. So early Christians, you know, thought about all of these things. How does the spirit, how does God, how does wisdom, how does all of this fit within our new tradition of uh, Jesus and God and this new practice called Christianity? And let me tell you, as Rausch alludes to, and as Aslan really, really well uh, pointed out to us, this was an early battle for the church. This principle of God being three at the same time being one, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was all together one. And so we might think of this in our minds as a sort of triangle, where each corner fits one of these three, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Um, we also might think of it in the way that um, St. Patrick of Ireland taught it, which was to consider a shamrock, three leaves, one stem, they're all connected. So this idea of Trinity, although introduced early on in the church, we're talking, you know, second, third century, um, really doesn't become formalized until the 4th century and the Council of Nicaea, and then later by Emperor Constantinople when he adopts Christianity as the official uh, practice and religion of the Roman Empire. And we saw the Marcion debate um, in Aslan's book. Eventually, though, it's adopted. 4th century, it is, it's pretty clear that this is the understanding that the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one and the same, are united in this uh, understanding of our theology. And great thinkers like St. Augustine of Hippo would go on to, to write great and respected treatise about this to say that, yes, in fact, this is what comprises the, um, the makeup of, of the Trinity. So Rausch talks about Father on 95, 96, the Son, and page 97, the Spirit. And I just ask you to review that. Again, not much of it is new from what you read in Aslan, but it just works through some of the history and some of the, the understanding of the Trinity uh, in terms of early Christianity. So I'd, again, encourage you, if you haven't read it yet, please make sure you do that.